Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks. Today, a special report, The Great American Tragedy, Food Insecurity in the Most Abundant Nation on Earth. To address child hunger, already a critical problem in America, further exacerbated by the pandemic, rules were relaxed for the federal free school lunch program. Now some want to make that policy permanent and even expand it further. Also this morning, like many issues brought on or made worse by COVID-19, the use of modern technology and out-of-the-box thinking is helping to address food insecurity. And as life returns to normal and the surge of demand on food banks eases, the challenge now becomes maintaining awareness and continuing the fight against an ongoing crisis that isn't going away anytime soon. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. So did you uh, watch the Major League Baseball All-Star Game last night? Uh, The American League won 5-2, but the stat that caught my eye more than the final score was the fact that there was one error. Each team made one error uh, in the box score. So there's one error on each side. And I'm thinking to myself, that has got to be the ultimate indignation for a Major League Baseball player. I mean, think about it. You are at the All-Star Game because you are among the best of the best. You have reached the pinnacle of your profession. You are among the world's best baseball, best and most skilled, most talented baseball players. So, and and in some very elite companies. So what happens when you get to the All-Star Game to showcase the fact that you are among the best of the best among professional baseball players, you commit an error. <laughs> I mean, really, that's got to be the ultimate indignation. But uh, anyway, all of the buzz about the game had nothing to do with the game itself. All of the uh, buzz this morning is about the uniforms. If you watch the All-Star Game, now normally at the All-Star Game, uh, players well wear their normal team uniform. Because baseball is not like many other sports where the offense and defense really uh, interact that much, you know, like football and, and, and so on. I mean, you pretty much know, uh, you know who's on your team and, and who's not. So matching uniforms are not so big of a deal uh, in baseball. And so normally players will wear their home team uniform if their side is the designated home team and the road uniform if they are the designated visitors. But last night, they did something different. The American League players were wearing all blue uniforms. Now, they had their team logo on them, and I think they had special uh, caps uh, with their uh, team logo on them. They're not the normal caps. But anyway, the, the, the uniforms themselves were all blue and the national league players had all white uniforms, uh, with the, uh, with the team logo on them. And some people that didn't sit very well with some baseball purists. Uh, the interwebs were all up in arms about this. Uh, some critics said the uniforms looked like jumpsuits. They did kind of look, the blue ones, I mean, white is white, but the blue ones looked kind of like uh, the color rush uniforms in in football. You know, they have the really bold, all solid colors, 
uh, for uh, both shirts and trousers. But anyway, um, they said they look like jump shoots or, or even pajamas. <laughs> Others said part of the fun of the All-Star game is seeing all of the players together in all of the different team uniforms, and this took that away. Uh, even some of the players were not all in. Milwaukee Brewers pitcher Brett Anderson tweeted, Major League Baseball should just let the players wear their own uniforms instead of these slow-pitch softball ones. <laughs> That's insulting slow-pitch softball. That is a little backhanded compliment. But anyway, so that is uh, one of the uh, buzz-worthy stories this morning. Things would be buzzing, people would be buzzing about today. Uh, among the news items that will certainly generate a lot of conversation today, uh, again, speaking of the first things you know this uh, first things you need to know this morning, yesterday, a federal appeals court ruled that bans on selling handguns to individuals under the age of 21 is unconstitutional, a violation of the right to bear arms guaranteed in the Second Amendment. The ruling takes aim at a more than five-decade-old law was signed back in 1968 by President Lyndon Johnson that bans sales of handguns to individuals under the age of 21. However, it allows anyone over the age of 18 to buy shotguns and rifles. And therein, I think, lies the problem. I'm not a legal expert, but I think that is the problem there, the uh, panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled two to one that the law relegated 18 to 20 year olds to second class status under the Second Amendment. And the uh, judge wrote, and this is why I think that the problem is that 18 to 20 year olds could buy rifles and shotguns, but could not buy handguns. And if, they, if it was an outright ban on anyone under the age of 21 owning guns, period, that would be one thing. But when you make exceptions for one type of gun, but not another type of gun, I think that's probably where the law uh, ran afoul of the court. As a matter of fact, Judge Julius Richardson wrote in the law, a line must sometimes be drawn, but there must be a reason why constitutional rights cannot be enjoyed until a certain age. The decision is that it just seemed uh, very uh, arbitrary and capricious. Uh, so court watchers uh, are saying the decision is likely to be appealed because other appeals courts have upheld the same law in the past. So it sounds like this is headed straight for the Supreme Court. So Anyway, that's uh, one of the most buzzworthy stories, to be sure, and one that uh, folks will be debating and discussing political talk shows and social media and so on and so on and so forth. So you heard the uh, story in the news, and this actually is another story that uh, made regional, even national headlines, Heavenly Pizza, uh, some time ago, what was it? Last week, uh, did it? What was the? Uh, was right after the Fourth of July? Did a, a customer appreciation or an employee appreciation day, where the uh, the business gave all of the day's profits, one hundred percent, split it among the employees, and uh, for that day, the employees made what was it, seventy eight dollars an hour 
to uh, make and deliver pizzas. Not a bad haul. Uh, it was just a way, uh, Josh Elkert, owner of Heavenly Pizza, said it was a way to uh, say thank you to the employees, dedicated staff. who's worked very hard during the pandemic, obviously. Here is a similar story I thought was kind of interesting. A Massachusetts restaurant owner sending a message to his employees and at the same time delivering a message for patrons who have been riled up lately to kind of chill out. Brandy Castellano owns App Cape Cod in Brewster, Massachusetts, and she says her restaurant has struggled with supplies since reopening and I mean, it's supply chain. Sometimes they can't get uh, everything they need to make everything on the menu is supply ch- uh, chain issues. And uh, of course, like many restaurants have been short staffed and, and so on. And she said she had been getting tired of the fact that many patrons have been crossing the line with their frustration and their anger uh, and taking out those frustrations on employees who can't do anything about it. She said one diner told a worker, I hope you get hit by a car when you leave work today. I mean, really, that's that's over the line. So she said that she shut her restaurant down for a day as a treat to the staff, as a day of kindness, free from the abuse of unruly patrons. And she, she basically gave everybody a paid day off, shut down the restaurant and said, just take a day. We're going to shut down the restaurant. We're going to send a message. Thank you to the employees and you know, just a uh, kind of a reset for the patrons. She posted about the closure on the website for the restaurant and said she has received support from servers seeing similar, similar treatment all over the country. So I thought that was pretty cool uh, as well. And if you are a patron, I understand at restaurants, sometimes it can be frustrating uh, because of a lack of help. Uh, places being short-staffed and maybe supply issues and not everything on the menu is available. I get it, but be kind. Doesn't doesn't cost you anything to be kind. Uh, Let's see here. Speaking of restaurants, you hear this. Yesterday was French Friday, and the uh, uh, restaurant Serendipity uh, in in New York City, uh, the... uh, The executive chef at Serendipity in New York City is created in honor of French Friday yesterday, the world's most expensive French fries. It's a restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Chef Joe Calderon says his restaurant won the Guinness World Record for the most expensive plate of fries. They are made from upstate New York potatoes, blanched in Don Perignon champagne and French vinegar, then cooked in goose fat and tossed with truffle oil and fresh truffles from Italy, along with a dusting of pecorino cheese. 200 bucks. $200 for one serving of fries. So make of that what you will. Interesting. And uh, lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most buzzworthy stories to get your day started, you can chew on this. Australian researchers asked a group of men and women about their attitudes toward promiscuity. They found that men who were open to a friends with benefits arrangement typically had longer faces, higher foreheads, longer noses, and larger eyes. 
and that women accurately identified those facial features as indicators of a guy's interest in a casual relationship. However, men, on the other hand, wrongly believed that women with smaller slender faces, with smaller eyes and smaller lips, were more open to the idea. So basically, what they found out is that women are good at correctly identifying promiscuous men, while the other way around, not so much. The co-author of the study, Joe Antar, says this is really a valuable skill to have, as it would allow women to make subconscious decisions about which men would be a good fit for them according to their relationship goals, shall we say. I'm thinking, people judge each other on all sorts of weird things, you know? That's, But uh, anyway, interesting study, something to think about there. There's things that make you go, hmm. The most uh, interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly sunny today with a high of 84, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 67. Heavenly Pizza in Findlay held an employee appreciation day recently in which all the money that came in that day went directly to the staff. Owner Josh Elkert says his employees ended up making 78 bucks an hour that day. You know, we try to make it as much of a family atmosphere and constantly show appreciation, but we really just wanted to make a big deal. And $78 an hour to make pizza, that's a pretty big deal. So we wanted to just make sure they felt valued and appreciated. He says while many restaurants have been experiencing staffing shortages, they've been able to stay fully staffed thanks to their dedicated employees. Get more on our website. Governor DeWine has signed a bill into law allowing county commissioners to determine the fate of renewable energy projects in their communities. When the measure signed Monday takes effect in 90 days, county commissions will be able to block proposed wind turbines, solar farms, or other renewable projects, or cite them in specific areas of a county. The proposal will also add a commissioner and trustee to the Ohio Power Citing Board while it reviews local projects. Proponents say the changes will put local control and input at the forefront, but opponents say they discriminate against renewable energy. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. Last month, the Ohio Power Siting Board denied plans for a wind farm project in Seneca and Sandusky counties. A private memorial service will be held on Thursday for Columbus Blue Jackets goalie Matisse Kivlinix. It will be streamed live online. The team also has set up a memorial fund to support youth hockey in Columbus and Latvia. All donations will be matched up to $80,000 in honor of his number 80. ONN's Brittany Bailey reporting Kivlinix died of chest trauma from an errant fireworks mortar blast on the 4th of July. President Biden is coming to Ohio. According to the White House, the president will be holding a town hall meeting in Cincinnati next Wednesday. Topics covered in the town hall will range from the economy to voting rights to COVID-19. Get more on our website. And get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. I'm Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM.
Well, even before the pandemic, food insecurity was a huge problem in this country, a problem that was made worse by the economic effects of COVID-19. For the past year or so, rules were relaxed on the federal free lunch program, making virtually every child universally eligible for no-cost, nutritionally sound meals. And now, a group of legislators want to make that policy permanent with the Universal School Meals Program Act of 2021. Crystal Fitzsimmons is director of school and out-of-school time programs at the Food Research and Action Center. And Crystal, this is something that advocates such as yourself have wanted to see for a long time. Clearly, you see you view this as your window of opportunity. Why would this be good policy moving forward? Of course. And Chris, thanks so much for having me on today. Um, so offering meals to all students at no charge just makes sense. You ensure that every single child is sitting in class, well-nourished, and ready to learn. Um, you get rid of a lot of administrative work that schools have to deal with. You get rid of unpaid school meal fees. I know a lot of people who are listening have seen the stories around kids having their lunches taken away and thrown in the trash because they didn't have their lunch money. Um, it just makes it so much easier to get kids the nutrition they need. And it also helps support families. So free meals are available to kids whose families are really, really struggling. So in order to qualify for free school meals, you know, you have to have an income of less than $30,000 for a family of three. But we know that lots of families are struggling regardless. And this is just a great way to make sure that the school cafeteria gives kids the nutrition they need and really promotes positive nutrition for all kids and learning. Now, no reasonable person would make an argument against feeding those in need, particularly children. But the problem many will see with this program is that unless you are going to raise taxes or print more money, the only way to pay for a program that gives a benefit to families who don't truly need it in the final analysis is by reallocating funds away from some other program which helps families that do need help. Well, I don't know that I would frame it quite like that. You know, we spend billions of dollars on education at the federal, state, and local level. And if we have kids who are sitting in the classroom who are hungry because their families are struggling but don't qualify for free school meals or who are, um, you know, forgot their lunch money that day so they weren't able to eat lunch or... We're just wasting our money because kids are not going to be able to focus. They're not going to be able to concentrate. And we also know that kids are more disruptive in the classroom and more likely to have behavioral problems and mental health problems if they don't have access to adequate nutrition. And the other thing I would just add to it as well is that we know that there's actually millions of kids who are certified for free school meals who do not participate and that's because of the stigma that they feel often as they get older. So we see participation in school meals among kids who are eligible for free school meals decrease as kids get older, as they become more aware that this is a program just for poor kids. So by making it a program for all kids, and not every kid is going to participate, families would still be able to pack their lunch, and it would just be offered to kids. You get rid of a ton of administrative work that schools have. You make sure that all kids have the nutrition they need in order to be in class ready to learn. It and is, you just build a more positive environment in the school cafeteria for all kids. 
It is a fair point uh, about the stigma, and uh, as you point out, it doesn't making children universally eligible doesn't necessarily mean that every child will uh, or every family would avail themselves uh, of the uh, uh, of this benefit necessarily. But by the way, this bill. Uh, as it exists now, would not only offer free lunches at school, but also after school, during the summer, and at child care. This is potentially a huge expansion of the existing free lunch program uh, as it exists now, is it not? And does that not only add to the urgency of the question of cost? Right. So I think there's two pieces to that. One is, yes, the bill is much broader, and it is a big vision for making meals universally available across the country. Congress is really focusing in on school meals for all, as opposed to kind of the broader menu. And so when the pandemic hit last year and schools closed and we had 29 million kids who are certified for free or reduced price school meals lose access to them overnight, schools and communities responded. And at the same time, so many families were losing jobs and wages. And so schools and community groups like YMCA's and boys clubs and churches all came together and were providing meals through the child nutrition program. And USDA relaxed a lot of the eligibility rules so that families could come to a summer meal site and pick up meals for the family because they lost access to school meals. So, you know, there are pieces within the legislation that would have kind of a broader approach. Let's just make sure that any child who asks for a meal, if they're at a rec center or if they're at an after school program is able to get one easily. But I will say that Congress is really kind of zeroing in on, you know, the healthy school meal for all approach because of the cost in some ways, but then also because kids are in school for six and a half hours a day. And every child is going to need a breakfast and a lunch um, in order to make it through that school day. And so school meals are really important. And also, as we look forward to recovering from all the learning disruption that kids have experienced due to the pandemic, we really think that healthy school meals for all is an important way to help support schools as they kind of rebuild kind of the lost ground that they've had over the last year. We talk about all of the merits uh, and all of the social uh, implications, the human uh, aspect of this, speaking specifically to the politics of it. Even President Biden has called for a more targeted approach to feeding students in high poverty schools. So it would seem that even the president uh, has some trepidation when it comes to this piece of legislation. Uh, So it it does appear that you would have a big job ahead in selling this big picture package to uh, even some in the Democratic Party uh, and to the American people in general. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think that you ever make positive change without really talking about what it's going to mean. And I will say this bill has been introduced before. And this time around, we actually have more co-sponsors in the Senate and more co-sponsors in the House. So there is definitely a lot of energy behind it. And I would say, you know, we have at this point in the country, we have about one in three schools offering breakfast and lunch at no charge to all students. And the pandemic really showed how much easier it is for schools, for kids, for families, if you're able to offer meals to all kids at no charge. So it's definitely a story that we are telling and we're trying to elevate and 
help people understand how valuable it is to make sure that every child has the nutrition they need in order to be successful in school. It's interesting you point out that already a number of districts are providing uh, this benefit, universal uh, free uh, uh, lunch access. Uh, absent a, a federal uh, mandate, absent the passage of this law, is that something that you will advocate more uh, school districts to take it upon themselves to do or uh, perhaps advocate for uh, something similar at the state level? So we have done a lot of work with schools across the country. And so the one in three that I talked about earlier, that's under a federal provision called community eligibility. We've worked with a lot of school districts to implement it and provided technical assistance. So we definitely do think that, you know, getting more schools that are eligible for that, um, using it is a very positive thing. And there are a couple of states that have actually gone ahead and passed universal legislation. Maine and California have both passed universal legislation. Minnesota actually had a bill introduced last session that would have focused on it. North Dakota did as well, uh, Massachusetts. So there's a variety of hmm. states that are looking at this and kind of really thinking about, like, how do we make sure that our kids are well-nourished because yeah. access to food is just as important as textbooks. Uh, interesting, uh, in the state by state rundown that you were mentioning, there are, uh, states that are, uh, where the leadership is of both parties. So at least at the state level, uh, there seems to be some, uh, bipartisan agreement on certain levels of this. Talking about the future of universal free lunch. Uh, programs in schools and beyond and the Universal School Meals Program Act of 2021. Crystal Fitzsimmons, again with the Food Research and Action Center, uh, one of the advocates for this legislation with us this morning. Crystal, thanks very much for taking the time and sharing your views. Oh, thanks for having me today. Over the past year and a half, the COVID-19 pandemic cast a bright spotlight on the very serious problem of food insecurity in this country. Above and beyond the issues that already existed, we learned just how fragile our supply chain was. But like so many issues that were either created or exacerbated by the pandemic, they are being addressed by innovations in technology. And joining us now are Mick Ebling, uh, founder uh, founder of Not Impossible Foundation and Labs, and uh, Stacy Simpson, global leader of corporate responsibility for Genpact. And Mick, I'll start with you. How is digital innovation playing a role in solving these complex social issues, specifically food insecurity? Well, the crazy thing is that uh, technology really hasn't played a role up until recently, up until we really got involved, is that you've got this massive societal issue of 50 million people who are struggling to put food on the table every day. And technology really hasn't played a role in that. People have to, you know, go across town and wait in lines and kind of do very kind of basic things. And we created a solution that allows people through their cell phone, through text messaging, to be connected to meals that are close to them, that are convenient for them. And so they can walk into a restaurant or a grocery store and they can pick up a meal that's been paid for by a donor on the back end. They can walk in and pick that meal up. And the beautiful thing is they walk in to that restaurant. It's close to them. It's convenient for them. And they walk out, not just with the meal for their for themselves, for their families, 
but they also walk out with their dignity because they're not identified as someone who's food insecure. Yeah. They look just like you and I. And that, that to us is a, is a major component of this program. So in a way, uh, the pandemic does have sort of a, a silver lining uh, in this respect. Uh, again, because it casts such a large spotlight on the issue that already existed even before all of this happened. Stacy, uh, the the mantra of GenPact is working with technology and digital transformation to make the world a better place. Talk about the application of that with respect to this partnership. Thanks, Chris. You know, as Nick said, right, in addition to being a societal issue, food insecurity is also at its core a data issue, right? Impact lies in the ability to leverage technology to better connect those that can help with those who need help. And so what GenMax is doing, you know, we help businesses solve really complex problems every day using digital transformation. And what we're doing with Not Impossible is applying that same expertise to help them have even greater impact. So one of the things that we're doing together is creating a platform that, puts, that links donors and restaurants and nonprofits and recipients all in one environment so that donors have real-time visibility into the impact of their donations. Because what we've seen is that when people can see the direct impact of what they give, they give more. So the ultimate goal here is for technology that creates better visibility, gets more people involved, and helps get more people fed. So, Mick, do you see this program as, as it exists right now, as you were laying it out, uh, as an endpoint, as the uh, result of uh, this innovation, or as a starting point for expanding uh, this program to combat food insecurity moving forward? Yeah, we're just getting started. We are just getting started. And I think we've achieved so much over this last year in terms of really refining how to make this easy for people to interact with and restaurants benefit and the user benefits and the organizations that's deploying benefits from it all. But now in our partnership with GenPak, we're going to be able to scale this even bigger and the crazy thing is, is that when you make a donation, typically you just, a friend of mine calls it poof money. You write the check and poof, you have no idea what happens to it. And yeah. I think what we're doing with Jetpack is going to make it so that people are going to have that human to human connection. You're going to know that, that that donation that you made, donating one meal per month, it's going to a family or it's going to a vet or it's going to a kid. And there's not going to be this disassociation of the fact that you don't really have an impact. You're going to know exactly what kind of impact you had on another, another human being. And I think once you do that, that's how this thing really goes big. And the reason I ask uh, about whether this is a, uh, an endpoint or a starting point is because earlier in the show, we were speaking uh, about how there is a move afoot in the post-pandemic analysis to continue to open up the free school lunch program universally because of the benefits that it brought over the past year and wanting to continue that. So speaking about the issue of food insecurity more broadly, how critical is it that innovations and partnerships like this continue moving forward, that they don't get lost in the return to normalcy as something that we had to do under the circumstances, but that we can put behind us once the crisis is over? I think that this is, you, you just said it, the pandemic shined a light on this, but this problem existed before, and sadly, it's going to exist for a while after. And we just had a conversation recently 
with somebody and they told us, they said, most people don't know this, but I slept in my car when I was getting my career started because I was so committed to my career and I was so committed to making it happen. And this is something that I could have really used. Mm. And so we want this. This is a tool for people to just get that little bit of support, that little bit of push, that little bit of nudge and forward so they can get them, get their feet underneath them, get their legs underneath them to be able to, to continue on with their life. So how do we learn more uh, about this uh, program? How do we get involved? Where can we get more information? So on and so forth. Lay it all out for us. Absolutely. So awareness, as you point out, is critical, right? You can't fix what you can't see. And so we're doing a lot of things together to just continuously look to raise visibility for this issue. So one of the things just this past weekend, um, Genpack leveraged its relationship with the Formula E all-electric racing team in Vision Virgin Racing to put the Not Impossible logo on our cars for our New York races. Again, putting the issue of food insecurity front and center for millions of fans. And so for your listeners who want to get involved, they can go to genpack.com slash not impossible. That's genpact, G-E-N-P-A-C-T dot com slash not impossible. There's all sorts of ways to get involved, even as an individual donor or if you're part of an organization or even a business that wants to be part of the solution. Because when we all set our minds to it, nothing is impossible. Again, uh, Mick Ebling, uh, founder of the Not Impossible Foundation and Labs, Stacey Simpson from Genpact. We'll have the link up on our webpage. Thank you both for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. So this morning, our overarching topic, we've been talking about the issue of food insecurity in this nation. And as life returns to normal post-pandemic and the surge of demand on food banks eases somewhat, the challenge now becomes maintaining awareness and continuing the fight against an ongoing crisis that isn't going away anytime soon. We are joined now by Tommy Harner, she's the CEO of the West Ohio Food Bank, which of course uh, serves this area. And and Tommy, let me ask you that question. Start with that that question. Uh, to what extent has uh, have things sort of returned to normal uh, for for your fo- you folks? Because I know at the height of the pandemic, uh, food banks. Uh, yours and others were kind of overwhelmed by this sudden influx of demand with so many people out of work and and so much uncertainty. How much of that has returned to quote unquote normal? Well, right now um, we are getting back into normalcy. Um, We're still providing those distributions throughout our service area. Those have not really slowed down too much. Mm -hmm. Um, The need is still out there. You know, in pulling numbers and looking at what we've served over the past year, we have almost 20,000 unduplicated families were served in our service area. And out of those, over 1,500 were grandparent households. Mm. So, you know, when we look at the need out there, seniors are one of our vulnerable populations. So, you know, they're struggling already with a fixed income and everything. And then you add aged children or grandchildren into the household. Sure. And that makes it even harder for them. That really, we're still 
Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to just interject. That really speaks to, as we mentioned, the the pandemic uh, in a way was sort of a silver lining because it called attention to this uh, problem. But this is a problem that existed before and will exist after. And the, the challenge, as we said, now becomes maintaining that awareness and making sure that people uh, are, are still aware and are still uh, helping to uh, feed the hungry. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is just educating the public and letting them know that that need is still out there. And while there are, you know, the extra PEBT benefits that children are getting and their families, those are going to end. So as we look at getting back to normal within our communities, there's still people out of work. The moratorium for the evictions ends at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. So that could force several families to become homeless um, and needing our services and others even more. So we continue to provide those distributions within our 11 county service area. So we are targeting those families who need us the most. Now, during the height of the pandemic, I know there were an awful lot of people who stepped up to uh, help out Uh, those who suddenly found themselves in need in this great influx of demand. And there were a number of innovative uh, programs and uh, sort of of out-of-the-box thinking, as we were mentioning a little bit earlier on the program, uh, to help meet that sudden demand. To what extent uh, is that response uh, continuing now again as the height of the pandemic eases it would be great to be able to maintain some of those relationships and some of those uh, programs and donations and so on that you were able to leverage to meet that sudden influx of demand uh, if that supply side uh, was able to continue, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, um, absolutely. So what we have realized over the pandemic was the need for a delivery service and the need for someone to coordinate those distributions and um, donations that we're getting within each of those counties. So fortunately, we had the National Guard that was here with us for a little over a year, Mm -hmm. and they truly helped us significantly um, distribute that food into those counties. We hired one of those National Guards to be our distribution and home delivery coordinator. So his job is to continue that outreach by providing a delivery service of food because what we want to do is get the food to the individuals. We don't want anyone to have to struggle or try to find ways if they don't have transportation, if they're disabled. um, We don't want them to have to struggle or go without. So his primary role is to continue that outreach and make sure those individuals have that food and, you know, just continue to go to where the individuals are. So we have delivered food to different factories where we know a lot of people that work there may be through temporary um, job agencies Mm. and they are still low income. So we're going to where the people are instead of just having them come to us. So I think that's a big factor as we continue moving forward is just seeing where is the need and how can we get into that area. We've mentioned before that really at the end of the day, it is rather ironic that 
in this the most bountiful nation on the planet that we have such a widespread issue with food insecurity it, it really should not be that way so again uh, it, it comes down to the question of awareness and uh, getting people to to step up and make a difference and that's again why why we want to highlight this issue now is to make sure that we maintain that awareness uh, moving forward because uh, this is a crisis that predated the pandemic and will still uh, continue uh, even after it is all over. Yes, absolutely. And you know, a lot of people may not have the means to donate financially. But what we want people to understand is it takes much more than just financial donations to continue our efforts. So they could volunteer their time. Um, We're looking into some different agricultural programs that we could be included in, such as working with farmers when they yield their crops, you know, having volunteers go out and glean those fields for whatever fell off. That that produce is still good. It's just maybe it fell off their truck or whatever. But it takes volunteers to go out and get those items, and then we can provide that to those families in need. So we just want to educate the, the public with, you know, volunteerism. We constantly need volunteers because it takes a lot of hands to make our work um, accessible to everybody. And just looking at unique ways of how we can obtain that food Uh, I know that there's some different stores we pick up from, retail stores, and as a partnership with Feeding America, we have that ability to do so. Um, But just reaching out to manufacturers, to truck drivers, if they have different loads that maybe a store rejects because it's the wrong type of item or something like that. You know, we want to implore them to call us. You know, we can arrange to get that item. And bring it here so it can still go into the homes of people who need those things. You know, and that's so there's many things yeah, that people can do. Yeah, and, and that's the other prong of this, the flip side of the same coin, is that at the same time as we're talking about food insecurity, there is an awful lot of food that does go to waste I- in this country. So uh, eliminating that or minimizing that uh, is going to be key as, uh, as well. For those who want to help, and again, recognizing that this is an ongoing need uh, in our community and all across the region, all across the country. How do they get involved? Well, they can contact us. Um, we have a website. It's www.wofb.org. They can call our office, 419-222-7946. And of course, we have pantries and meal sites throughout all of our 11 county service area. So those volunteers don't necessarily have to come to our facility, but we can steer them in directions of where we may be providing distributions or where maybe one of our partner agencies need volunteer assistance as well. And then, of course, if any donors that own um, grocery retail stores or farmers would like to be involved in donating items, they can also contact our office as well through either one of those means I just mentioned. Continuing to address the ongoing issue of food insecurity in this country. Again, Tommy Harner is CEO of the West Ohio Food Bank with us this morning. Tommy, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. 
Today's update in the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. A Taco Bell employee in Nashville, Tennessee, was arrested on Monday after she and her co-workers allegedly set off fireworks inside the restaurant, causing the building to catch fire as they watched from afar. And then, <laughs> when they when they tried to, I guess, go back and, and put out the fire that they had inadvertently started, they found they had accidentally locked themselves out. <laughs> So just expanding on the idiocy there uh, to take it to a new level. Uh, The incident took place uh, on July 5th, uh, but but by July 8th, the restaurant's manager discovered surveillance camera footage that showed his employees playing with fireworks inside the restaurant. The, uh, The footage has not been made public, but at one point is said to show employees placing an item into a trash can near the door using their cell phone cameras to record the trash can from the outside of the restaurant before realizing they locked themselves out of the restaurant, and when they couldn't get back inside, the trash can started to smoke. Uh, That's when they called 911 for help. The Nashville Fire Department estimates the fire caused more than $30,000 worth of damage to the uh, interior of the restaurant. The shift leader, uh, 25-year-old Courtney Mays, was taken into custody on Monday, and charged with aggravated arson. (laughs) And I'm guessing there are a whole lot of former Taco Bell employees that are now looking for new jobs. (laughs) So why did you leave your last place of employment? Well, you see, it was like this. (laughs) Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, this is not what to do. If you get bored sitting in traffic, Jimmy Jennings, age 26, says he had been caught in a traffic jam for more than two hours after a multi-car collision on Interstate 10 in Louisiana. So he decided to jump into the Atchafalaya River below the road. Now, mind you, uh, this is an alligator infested river, so this is not too bright on so many levels. He said he, he said he had trouble swimming and truly thought it was the end of my time. Uh, he even admits he uh, asked God to forgive uh, to forgive him and uh, forgave everyone in his life uh, because he thought he was uh, at the end of his he said he said he thought he would simply jump into the river and swim qu- quickly back to shore and then jump right back into his into his car, or his friend's car, actually. He wasn't even driving. He was in a car with a friend. I don't know if there was a dare involved uh, or put this in the file of seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, he was instead, a uh, viral video shows him taking a running jump before hopping over the barrier and then crashing down into the water. He was forced to wait in the water for almost three hours for rescuers and says the current was so strong he couldn't swim to the shore. Uh, He says when he did eventually make it back to the mainland, he was placed in handcuffs, charged with criminal mischief and criminal trespassing, and he has vowed never to do anything like that ever again. I would think not. (laughs) All all because it's just bored. You know what? I've been in traffic jams on the interstate uh, where people have gotten out and started like playing Frisbee. (laughs) <laughs> by the side of the road or, or whatever, but jumping into jumping off a bridge and into a lake, probably not alligator infested waters or not. Probably not the best 
choice. That's why it's the broken news. One Pennsylvania man thought he had scored a great deal. A woman approached him, promising him both money and sex at the same time. Uh, His night ended instead with another man pointing a gun at his head. Surprise, surprise, didn't work out well for him at all. The victim, who was not identified by name in the police report, said that a woman he did not know lured him to a hotel in Ebensburg, Pennsylvania, by promising him $450 in cash and some X-rated tender loving care. Just for reference, that's usually not how it works. <laughs> usually, usually you do not get the uh, <clears throat> uh, service and get paid. <laughs> usually <laughs> it's one or the other, but you usually don't get both. So that maybe should have been your first clue. He says when he got to the hotel, the woman was nowhere to be found. And instead, 30-year-old Jesse Larner was brandishing an AR-15 and threatening to shoot him in the face. Somehow the man managed to flee and call 911. Mr. Uh, Mr. Lamar uh, denies pointing the gun at the supposed victim, but did fess up that the gun did belong to him. After all, he had it sitting on the bed there at the hotel. So he couldn't really, (laughs) he couldn't really explain that one away. Uh, In addition to the rifle and some bullets, police also found his stash of of methamphetamine. Oh, surprise, surprise. (laughs) There were drugs involved. Uh, Mr. Lamar was arrested and is facing several charges that include aggravated assault, drug possession, reckless endangerment, and terroristic threats. He remains in the Cambria County prison. And I wonder if this guy also is saying, I will never do anything like that again. I would hope so. And finally, in the broken news this morning, a 48-year-old woman from Rock Hill, South Carolina, claims that she makes $4,200 a month by selling videos of herself farting online. You heard that right. Emma Martin says she has been making money this way for more than 20 years. She calls the practice flatulence camming. Flatulence camming. <laughs> she charges $4.99 a month for people to view her videos. The married mother of two says she even follows a special diet to enhance her performance, including a lot of salad, asparagus, and avocado, as well as lots of Mexican food. She says one of my favorites is coleslaw and baked beans mixed together. I eat a lot of that, she says. She says her husband knows about her videos, but her kids do not, and she only films the videos when she's home alone. She primarily uses the OnlyFans website under the username Tart, but she also sells custom-made videos for about $7 per minute. <laughs> so if you ever wanted to order a custom video, <laughs> then you can do that. She says that uh, this is, uh, there is a surprisingly large audience for this, said half of her fan base are white-collar professionals. She also notes that she makes so much money from farting on camera that she was able to quit her regular job back in 2005. (laughs) I honestly don't know what to say about that, other than... That concludes today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news is brought to you as a public service, more or less, 
of Hancock County Veterans Services, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It's the WFIN Virtual Car Show. Get them out, shine them up, and upload a pic of your classic, and we'll post it to WFIN.com for everybody to see. In addition, we'll have an online car show calendar so that you know when and where all the area shows are. It's chrome and horsepower on display online. The WFIN Virtual Car Show and Calendar. Thanks to Details Auto Spa, Loritz Chevrolet Cadillac, and 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download this morning, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. New study uh, published this week in Social Social Psychological and Personality Science. It's a uh, medical journal, Social Psychological and Personality Science, uh, finds that uh, two-thirds of romantic couples started out in a platonic relationship. And isn't that the... Uh, Eternal question, is it better to be friends first before you are romantically involved? Uh, The friends first initiation of romance is often overlooked by researchers. So examining a sample of previous studies on how relationships begin, the authors found that nearly 75% focused on the spark of romance between strangers. By contrast, only 8% centered on romance that develops among friends over time. There are a lot of people who would feel very confident in saying that we know why and how people choose their partners and become a couple and fall in love. But our research, according to the lead author, Danu Anthony Stinson, the University of Victoria in Canada, Canada, uh, says our research suggests that it is not the case uh, that uh, people just spontaneously meet and fall in love, but in many more cases... Uh, two-thirds, two out of three, uh, a good, solid relationship, a lasting relationship is one that evolves uh, from friendship into romance over time. Kind of interesting there. And I thought it was interesting that it's uh, something that uh, psychological researchers have never really looked very closely at. Maybe we need to look a little bit more closely uh, at that. But it seems that that would be logical. If you think about it, you start as uh, friends first. Now, having said that, my wife and I uh, did not. <laughs> that's not how my wife and I met. So I'm, I guess, the exception rather than the rule. But interesting nonetheless. You know, a lot of people didn't like what they saw and they looked in the mirror over the past year. Uh, many of us, in the course of the pandemic, uh, spent some time sort of examining our lives and where we are, taking a good hard look in the mirror and not liking what we saw. And now people are seeking to start again, kind of reboot post-pandemic by living life with a greater purpose. Uh, it's one of those things that a, a major life event like the pandemic uh, makes you kind of take stock of, of where you are. And if you are among those uh, looking to live a life with greater purpose, maybe changing a career or uh, some other aspect of your life, all you need is a plan of action. Here's correspondent John Clemens, Keeping the Faith. After almost four decades in corporate America, and on the nonprofit side, Randy Linville has authored Plan of Action. 
I've been the beneficiary of a lot of blessing in all the organizations that I've worked in. And while it's fresh on my mind, I should try to compile that and pass it on for the benefit of others. The calling on Linville's life now is to help others benefit from his experience. If I compile all that, that, that is amazing. And I think God is, is calling me to give people the benefit of that to apply to their own lives without you know, all the trials and tribulations of going through the experiences. Without God's purpose in our lives, our passions, gifts, skills, and desires will soon be lost. You know, you fall into what it, whatever it is that you do to make a living, and you, you might get lucky and you might find the perfect thing that lasts a lifetime, or it might pay the bills, and then all of a sudden, uh, there's no fun in the work or no joy in the journey, and that's when you take a pause to reflect about, am I in the right place? Is this what God called me to do? Randy Linville believes plan of action will benefit everyone, from those beginning their careers to mid-career executives who are in prayer for God to reveal what He wants for the rest of their lives. Part of my uh, history, I learned when people get into their 50s and they go through the conventional midlife crisis, that there's a whole body of work out there to help them navigate to the next chapter. As I'm a father of two kids in their 20s and see them going through essentially the same thing, trying to decide their life's work they had the same toolkit that the midlife people did, it would be very helpful. Linville writes in Plan of Action of doing work that is for the greater good. Well, I think the people that manage their life in those kind of situations are really find joy. They see through the basic day-to-day process, and they see the broader purpose in the use of whatever it is they're making, if it's a good or the service that they're providing. And if they can't do that, if they can't see through to the greater good, then I think they do indeed have this pause and they say, there's got to be something else for me. A portion of Plan of Action describes his admiration for Dwight David Eisenhower, who, like Linville, was also raised in Kansas. Eisenhower served as the Supreme Commander, planning the Normandy invasion, and became a five-star general. In 1953, Eisenhower became the 34th Commander-in-Chief as President of the United States. I've also had the ability to go to uh, Omaha Beach in Europe and see... Uh, you know, that battlefield and learn about it. And, you know, his famous quote is, uh, planning is everything, the plan itself is nothing. You really see that in that battlefield because that was a battle won on logistics and great planning. It really brings it to life by going there and actually uh, seeing it. Linville's desire for readers a plan of action is they develop positive life changes. As a corporate executive in both nonprofits and for-profits, you can touch the lives of those that work or serve in those organizations. But I believe the best practices that came out of that experience bundled into this book and circulated broadly can impact thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Here's how to get more information from Randy Linville, author of Plan of Action. 
The book has its own website. It's uh, planofactionbook.com. The outsided curated quotes are also just terrific. They've helped me through many a long days. This is John Clemens reporting. And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. Get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, goodmornings.net. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.